Great, great, fantastic. I'm sure that, um, some of the mums and dads and carers will, will be coming back up shortly, but I do want to just um, introduce Gary to you, Gary Jenkins. Um, really welcome to our away day. It's great to have Gary with us. Um, contrary to some reports, he is not retired. Apparently in the Church Times, I think Jane saw it, um, there's a Gary Jenkins who's retired uh, at the end of October, but it's not this Gary Jenkins. Welcome. Well, thank you. I mean, I'd be very happy to retire, but I would like to know in advance. <laughs> it's, it's funny to read in the Church Times, but there we are. Yeah. Um, I just wonder if you could uh, just introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself I'm, and who you are. I'm Gary Jenkins. I'm vicar of St. James and St. Anne's in Bermondsey. Um, I've... Uh, always been in this diocese. In fact, I've always lived in this diocese. That's very boring. Um, I've been vicar of three parishes, and before that, I was a chemistry teacher. And I taught at the school that Sadiq Khan went to, but I can't remember him. <laughs> great, fantastic. Um, it would. I always think it's great to get to know somebody a bit of yeah. their story and their, how they came to faith. And so, perhaps you could just give us a, a minute or two about how that. I, uh, I didn't have a church upbringing at all. Came from a lovely, very loving home, but I had no church upbringing. Never went to church, never went to Sunday school, anything like that. Uh, when I was in sixth form, I was doing biology, and we went on a biology field trip to a place called Slapton Lee in Devon. You've been there. We're studying seaweed. Um, <clears throat> it's pretty exciting stuff. But um, my teacher, biology teacher, was a Christian. And one night we had one of these kind of long talks about where's the world going, all this kind of stuff. Um, and he started sharing um, with me his, about his faith and uh, some bits in the Bible. And from the day that I'd been a, a child, I'd always been fascinated, not fascinated, but shocked that when Jesus was being taken to the cross, he didn't complain, he didn't fight back, he didn't do anything about it. Um, and I was a very argumentative teenager, and I would have really protested strongly about that kind of treatment. I could never say why he didn't, and why at the last minute someone didn't come and, and rescue him. And he showed me how that, not only was that, that didn't happen, but it, wasn't, it was planned not to happen. And right back in Isaiah, it has said, he never said a word, it was kind of thing. Anyway, it just had the most astonishing effect on me I didn't know what happened. I didn't sleep at all that night. And for two weeks, I felt like I was walking on air. And I had this amazing sense of the love of God and what that was. And I didn't start going to church or any of that kind of stuff. It took me quite a long time to get into that. But that was, it really was for me, completely out of the blue, Damascus remote experience. This is what happened um, on a biology field trip when I was 17. And what's it been like since? <laughs> well, eventually I started going to church. I found that was really quite good. But um, I, I was reluctant in all that kind of stuff. And I have to confess that the very first day I went to church was the day I was confirmed. Because I did a confirmation course, but I never went to church all the time through it. So it was the very first time I went. Um, so, yeah, what happened? All kinds of things have happened since then. And um, I was greatly helped by a whole load of people that I bumped into. God brought me across their path. I'm going to refer to him uh, in one of my talks. One of them was our university chaplain, who was... The university I went to was the only one in the country at that time that had an evangelical 
as its Anglican chaplain. I didn't know that, but I went to that university and I met him, and that made a huge impact on my life. I met my wife there and all the rest of it. Fantastic. I do take opportunity to, to speak to Gary and get to know him. Um, we're really excited to have you with us. Is there anything you want... What, what are you most excited about today? Is there something... You, I mean, I don't want to give away the talk, but right. is there something you would... I'll tell you two, two things. First of all, um, I love coming to do things like this. Um, and I love this church because I have previously come before, and I think I've known three successive vicars of St. John's. But the other thing is, I just want to say a little bit about CPAS. We are the patrons of St. John's, and I'm the vice chair of the Patronage Trustees. We've got 530 churches. You're one of our churches. We love you. And it's thrilling just to see you all here and to see St. John's thriving, um, because that's what we're trying to do, is to help churches and encourage them. Great. Thank you. We'll get a bit more as I'm sure we'll go along. Let me just pray for you again. Thank you. God, our Father, thank you for Gary. Thank you for the way that you revealed your son Jesus to him. And we pray now as he speaks, as he takes your word, we pray that you would um, lead him by your spirit. Help him, uh, we pray, to speak clearly and effectively and help us to be listening uh, to you and what you have to say to us today. Um, So equip him, equip us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Over to you. Thank you, Eddie. Um, I nearly lost my voice this week. I've had this throaty cough, so I'm kind of chewing a cough sweet. So if you think the speaker is eating while he's speaking, that's the reason. So um, I hope that's not too distracting. If you want to have 1 Peter chapter 2 open in front of you, um, that may be helpful. We're coming to that in a few moments. If someone likes to, if for the church Bibles, might shout out a page number. 1218. 1218 in the church Bibles. We're coming to that in a minute, so um, we'll leave that uh, for the moment. Now, if you overheard someone talking about their hope, their joy, and the crown in which they glory, what do you think they'll be talking about? I can tell you in Bermondsey, almost certainly they'd be talking about Millwall Football Club. <clears throat> but what would it be, their hope, their joy, their crown in which they glory? It could be a great achievement, perhaps uh, climbing Everest, or winning a Golden Globe, or an Olympic gold medal, or being awarded an OBE by the Queen. Or it might be a, a very treasured possession, or a very special person. Or if it was a Christian, it could be someone who's talking about the gospel or about salvation um, or the Lord himself. After all, wouldn't any Christian say that Jesus is their hope, their joy, the crown in which they glory? It could be any of these, but in fact it's none of them. If you turn to, I don't necessarily do this, but if you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, And verse 9, we discover what it is that the Apostle Paul is talking about when he describes his hope, his joy, his crown in which he will glory. What we discover is that the Apostle Paul is talking about the church. He's talking about the church at Thessalonica, the church that he's writing to. He says to them this, 
For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? It's you, says Paul to the Thessalonians. Is that pathetic little bunch of believers in the back streets of Thessalonica. That tiny church that no one has ever heard of. That church, says Paul, is my hope, my joy, my crown. When the Lord Jesus returns, I will be glorying in the church of Thessalonica. Isn't that an amazing thought? All the things you think you might be glorying in on the day that Lord Jesus returns. Eddie will be glorying in St. John's Blackheath. I will be glorying in St. James and St. Anne's Bermondsey. For what is our joy, our hope, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes, says Paul to the Thessalonians, Well, you can't have a higher view of the church than that. But it's the Bible's view. Instinctively, we have a lower view. Frankly, we often find the church disappointing or uninspiring. We often are critical of the church. We sometimes laugh at the church. We're often embarrassed by the church. And the outside world doesn't think much of the church either. Recent surveys show a far higher proportion than ever before of people who have said they are non-religious. A few years ago, we had those buses chugging, chugging around London proclaiming, there is no God. And if there is no God, and more and more people believe that, then there can be no more useless organisation than the church, which is trying to sell a product that simply doesn't exist. In many people's eyes, the church is an irrelevance, an anachronism, a historical leftover which is long past its best before date. But in God's eyes, the church is infinitely precious and valuable. It's the bride of Christ. It's the temple of the living God. It's the pillar and foundation of the truth. It was bought with the blood of his son. Who would guess, by considering the church's low standing in post-Christian Britain, just how important the church is in God's eyes? But that's the crucial thing, in God's eyes. Before we can even think about what the church should do, We need to be clear about who we are. Not in our eyes, not in the world's eyes, but in God's eyes. Because ultimately, the only opinion of the church that really matters is God's. If we're going to understand what the church is and what it's for, we're going to need a God's eye view of it. Because God is the creator and sustainer of the church. He's the sole reason for its being. We need to know what the Holy Spirit has said about the church in his word. And that's where our reading from 1 Peter comes in. 1, 1 Peter, 
is a letter from the Apostle Paul, Peter, written to the church, not to individuals, but to churches, congregations, gatherings of Christians. Here's what Peter says about who we are. Verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's look at this a bit more closely. The first thing that God says to his church is, you are a chosen people. The church is made up of people chosen by God. I've got some, thank you very much, that's very kind, but give me some, that may be um, reinforcements. The church is made up of people chosen by God. The very word ecclesia, from which we get words like ecclesiastical, means the chosen ones, or the called out ones. That's the amazing thought. We are a chosen people. I always remember when I was a theological student, we were doing a college mission, um, and I was staying with a family, um, and they had a five-year-old, five or six-year-old son who was adopted. And David felt it was very important right from the beginning of his life, as soon as you could understand, for them to know that, for him to know that he was adopted. But they didn't want him to think that that was a bad thing because they loved him and they treasured him. And what they used to say to him was, we chose you. We chose you. That's very special. He was their son. They loved him. But they had chosen In the same way, God's church is special to him. Just like a man chooses his wife or a woman chooses her husband, so God has chosen his people. What a wonderful privilege it is to be chosen by God. What a privilege to be part of his church. That's the first thing God says about his church. You are chosen people. Then he says, you are a royal priesthood. In Old Testament times, everyone knew what a priest was. He was the person who had direct access to God. He was a kind of spiritual go-between and mediator between God and man. But hear this. Now every Christian is a member of the royal priesthood. We are all priests, every one of us. Because each of us has direct access to God. There's no mediator there. And we are a royal priesthood because we belong to the king. Some years ago, um, I went to a conference centre, a Christian conference centre. And it was a fabulous place. It had beautiful sort of open panel stuff and wonderful rooms and everything. And one of the other guests said to the warden, said, have you ever had a member of the royal family stay here? Because it's kind of place the, you know, the queen might turn up to, or at least something like Princess Anne. Have you ever had a member of the royal family here? And the warden said it, it was kind of a little bit pious, but I kind of, it really struck me, he said, all the Lord's people are members of the royal family. 
They're all part of the royal priesthood. They're in the royal family. They're children of the king. What an amazing thing the church is. It's been chosen by God. It has direct access to the Lord. They're your priests. You're royal priests because you're the king's priests. Lastly, God says to his church, you are a holy nation, a people belonging to God. In the Old Testament, the Jewish nation was God's own nation. They were set apart from all the other nations because they belonged to God. Now the church, drawn from every nation, is God's new nation. A nation not just drawn from one ethnic group, but from everyone. Uh, in our church, uh, St. James, we have a thing called Bermondsey Brew. It's nothing to do with the Bermondsey Beer Mile. Um, it's, uh, it's tea and coffee and cakes and that kind of stuff on a Monday afternoon. It's a kind of community cafe. And uh, I was talking to a bloke who had come into that, and he was originally from Brazil. He's a young bloke in his uh, late 20s. And he was telling me about how much he loved being a Briton. He said, I love this country, it's fantastic. It's so tolerant, it's so welcoming, I love being here. And so we got to talk a bit more about this. He said, you know, he said, I'm British now. I'm a British citizen. And he got out um, from his pocket his passport, his British passport. And he said, this is my most treasured possession. And he kissed it. Um, he rather then spoilt it by having told us how tolerant our country was. He said, the thing about you, he says, I don't know why you're letting all these Eastern Europeans, absolute scum, you should keep them out. So um, that rather spot his point, I felt, about the tolerance and the welcome. <clears throat> but his point was, his passport is his most treasured possession, because it means he's a citizen of Britain. Have you ever thought how wonderful it is to be part of God's holy nation? A people belonging to God that's drawn from every nation in the world. Rick Warren, who wrote The Purpose Driven Life, said this. I love the church of Jesus Christ with all my heart. Despite all its faults, it's still the most magnificent concept ever created. It's been God's chosen instrument for blessing for 2,000 years. It has survived persistent abuse, horrifying persecution, and widespread, widespread neglect. It's worth giving our lives for, and it deserves our best. Don't knock the church. Don't despise the church. But thank God that you belong to it. At the same time, don't spiritualise it or idealise it. Because what I mean by that is, you can have a great view. I can, have, I can sit in my study and read books about the church, and I think the church is absolutely fantastic. And then I meet my congregation, and I think about myself, and I think about some of the old characters and some awkward people, and the people who have fallen out with each other, and all that kind of thing. And then this kind of reality dawns. But listen to this, and this kind of rings true for me. It's slightly old-fashioned language, but it's a man writing in the 1930s about the church. And he wrote this. A marvellous and extraordinary ragbag of saints and fatheads 
that makes up the one holy Catholic apostolic church of God. Okay, it's got its saints, it's got its fatheads, whatever fatheads are, it's got its weirdos, it's got its failures. It's quite obviously a flawed and fallible organisation. But nothing can take away the fact that it's the church. It's God's church. I I read a a book by a Baptist minister a few years ago. And he was invited to be interviewed to be pastor of a very, very large and thriving Baptist church in south east of England. And uh, a big interview panel asking all kinds of questions. And one of the things they said to him, they said to him, what's your vision for this church? What's your vision for the church? And he said, well, um, to be the church. That's my vision for the church. To be the church. To be God's church. To be that chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. This rag bag of people that God loves, that God treasures. The greatest privilege you and I could ever have is for God to say to us, I regard you as a member of my church. Your part of that body that I call a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. The greatest hymn about the wonder of being part of God's church was written by John Newton. And it begins like this. Glorious things of thee are spoken. Zion city of our God. Is that amazing? The man who wrote Amazing Grace also wrote a hymn about the amazing church. Glorious things of thee are spoken. Zion city of our God. It concludes. Saviour, since of Zion city, I through grace remember Anne. Let the world deride or pity, I will glory in your name. Fading are the world's best pleasures, all its boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. Who do we think we are? We think we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, A people belonging to God. And why do we think that? Because God has told us so. Well, we're just going to stay where we are. um, Just in twos or threes. Not into the groups we're going to have later. Just in twos or threes for about five minutes. Can you just buzz with the people around you? Okay. What do you love about your church? Okay. This is not the church nationally um, or the church in heaven or anything like that. What do you love about your church? Let's just have a few minutes saying lovely things, good things about St. John's. What do you love about your church? Yeah, because it's been 20 minutes quite a good time.
Okay, folks, we're... Uh, it's, a, it's a big group. Do fearful people want to throw something out? What, what do you really love about St. John's? Tell me the great things about St. John's. Who would like to just call something out? Outward looking, outward looking, yep. Family. Family. Home. Youth work. Proactive. Challenging. Mixture. Anything else? Welcoming. Okay, fantastic. And I hear from over here the underfloor heating is very popular as well, so that's great. Now, um... We're going to move on uh, just very briefly now, and then it, we're going to go into small groups. Just having thought about what the church is, this amazing institution, this amazing body of people, this thing that is so valuable in God's eyes and in God's sight. And it's so crucial for us to remember that. I want to talk now about the church's treasure. But first of all, I want to tell you about... St. Mary Magdalene Church in Bermondsey, which is our next-door neighbour. Now, I'm at currently the area dean, and one of the things you have to do is you have to go and inspect the church's silver uh, each year to make sure no one's pinched it. And in most cases, you go and have a look at a couple of chalices and a couple of patterns, and that's the end of it. But St. Mary Magdalene is a very ancient uh, parish, and it's been merged with four other parishes, mainly because those churches were bombed during the war. And St. Mary Magdalene's Bermondsey, has actually got a strong room. You go into this room, it's a strong room, and in it are these huge leather chests. They're like treasure chests. It's just what a child would think a treasure chest would be like. And it is very dusty and grimy in this room. And then they kind of, this thing creaks open. And inside are all these 17th century chalices and patterns and huge flagons they have got enough silver to, to, to have about 12,000 people at their communion services. Um, a vast amount. And um, you have to sign a cheque, it's all there, okay? It's astonishing. I shall never forget the strong room at St Mary's Bermondsey. But there's something even more wonderful, infinitely precious treasure that every church has, that every Christian has. Famously, is described in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 like this. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Like the old boxes, the old chests in St Mary's strong room, we're jars of clay. Very ordinary and unexceptional receptacles for the church's true treasure. But what is that treasure? What is it the treasure the church has? The church is special in God's sight as his people, but what is the treasure that God has given the church? The Apostle Paul reveals the answer in his preceding verse, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shining our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory 
displayed in the face of Christ. The treasure is the light of the knowledge of God's glory. Although I kind of didn't know what had happened to me that night on that biology field trip, I realise now that I got this glimpse of something glorious and wonderful and life-changing. I didn't know what it was, couldn't understand it. But that's what it was. The treasure is the light of the knowledge of God's glory. The treasure is knowing the Lord. The great and mighty God who called the universe into being and sustains it by his word. The almighty Father who didn't even spare his own son but gave him up for us all. The Father who sends the Spirit of his Son into our hearts so that we cry out, Abba, Father. Our greatest treasure is knowing the Lord. It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in our hearts. That's why the church is so special. That's why the church is so wonderful. That's why the church is unique. Because of the treasure. The treasure that is ours by grace for eternity. And the treasure that we have to share with a world in need. I love the words outward looking and welcome because the treasure isn't to be kept in the strong room locked up the treasure is to be enjoyed but to be shared to return to that hymn I quoted earlier fading are the world's best pleasures all its boasted pomp and show solid joys And lasting treasures none but Zion's children know. That's the amazing thing. We're God's people chosen by him. We've been given this amazing treasure. You might think, well what has that got to do with the heart for service? One thing it's got to do with heart for service is we need to know what we're part of and why we'd want to do anything as part of it. And although none of these things are new to us, we need to constantly be reminded of them and to revisit them. To know how wonderful the church is and to know its treasure. Now we're going to go into small groups. Um, I think Chris is going to come and divide people up or show people where to go, is that right? But let me just tell you, the, the, the idea behind it is that there are a number of scenarios. We're going to suggest you st- do, start off with one of them. You may only get time to do one. If you finish one, you can do another one. But the idea is to sort of flesh out some of the thoughts of both this talk and the next one in some practical scenarios.